0: Welcome to another episode of Anthropod. Joining us today is Professor Naisargi Dave. She's an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto and the author of the book, Queer Activism in India, A Story in the Anthropology of Ethics. In this book, Professor Dave focuses on, quote, something extraordinary, lesbian activism in a time and place of often violent cultural conservatism for what it tells us about something exceedingly ordinary, that what most activist and non-activist lesbian women in India share is a desire to experience sexuality as potential and possibility. Her book was awarded the Ruth Benedict Prize in 2013 by the Association for Queer Anthropology. Now in her recent essay in cultural anthropology she's turned her empathetic attention and her ethnographic sensitivity towards another kind of activism animal rights activism. Professor Dave draws our attention to the act and experience of witnessing an animal suffering for activists in India, and through a narrative that is both theoretically innovative and deeply affecting, helps us think through the contradictions and complexities of being human with animals as we live together, speak and act on their behalf, and perhaps even become them. Her essay is entitled Witness, humans animals and the politics of becoming so thank you for being here professor david
1: thank you very much for having me
0: very nice to have the opportunity to talk to you um now before we discuss your essay specifically i'd like to learn a little more about how you arrived at the point of doing field work with activists in india can you tell us about how this became the core of your work
1: uh yes um perhaps i should be embarrassed about this but it started actually when i was an undergraduate I took a women's studies course at the University of Georgia, where I was a pre-med student, though majoring in anthropology. And I had to write a paper for that course, which led me to find a couple of texts that were a revelation to me at the time. Our Feet Walk the Sky, I remember, was one of them. And these were writings on Indian diasporic lesbian writing. And I remember saying to my professor the next time I saw her that my future had suddenly become clear to me. I was going to go to graduate school in anthropology and write a dissertation on quote-unquote lesbians in India. And I'm sure she found this all very vague, but she was very kind to me. And now that I'm a professor, I can imagine she was just very, she was pleased that her course had engendered so much enthusiasm. Um, I did wind up going to graduate school in anthropology to write a dissertation actually not too far afield from what I had told her that day, but the focus on activism only emerged after my first uh, research trip, and partly this was about access. Really the only way for a relative stranger like me to meet queer women in India was through organizers and activists. Uh, So through a very circuitous and I think rather funny route that I write about in my book, I wound up at the home of a prominent lesbian activist in Delhi at a small gathering with several other activists, including a few other diasporic women. And this was in 1999, which as we know now and we're fortunate to know even then while it was happening was a key historical moment for lesbianism in India. It had never been more public and never been more contentious lesbianism was being debated in Parliament, was the reason for riots, and was the subject for protests and counter-protests in city centers like Delhi and Bombay. And this was all sparked, I should say, by the controversy around Deepa Mehta's film, Fire, and its historical coincidence with the rise of right-wing Hindu nationalism. So as you can imagine, the activists I met that summer were deeply engaged and focused at the time, but they hadn't emerged out of nowhere either. For years well before the BBC or the New York Times started writing about lesbianism in India, these activists had been at work more quietly, um, starting helplines, convincing other feminists about the intersection of sexism and compulsory heterosexuality and all of that. And I think all of this, which is to say activism, became, my, became the focus of my work because there's something fascinating to me about people with obsessions. Uh, people who work this hard and care this much, and people who truly invent new ways of being in the world.
0: Very interesting. Um, can you just say again where you did your PhD?
1: I did my PhD at the University in of Michigan. Michigan. Mm-hmm. And
0: what kind of department was it? Was it the kind of place that uh, where other students or professors were doing this kind of work?
1: Well, I... My advisor was. My advisor was Jennifer Robertson, Mm -hmm. who had written a book called Takurasaka on the all female uh, review theater, which I imagine you know about. Uh Um, The
0: the one in Japan.
1: That's right. Well, those years at Michigan, I think, have shaped the way I think and do things a lot, and I realize that more all the time. Uh, For one thing, it was a very unabashedly Foucauldian and very social constructivist space. Um, The first class I took in cultural anthropology was with Anne Stoller, who uh, had just developed this course on the politics of memory. And while I had already become a bit of a fan of Foucault in college, this was, I think, where I became something more akin to like a devotee. Uh, Another thing that was very much in the air at the time and not unrelated to that rampant Foucauldianism was interdisciplinarity, but particularly an emphasis on anthropology and history, which for me was largely about histories of post-coloniality, something that I further explored within the space of South Asian studies, which was also extremely vibrant at the time uh, and remains so. The four-field nature of our department was also very important for me. I learned so much in the mandatory ling classes that I took, semiotic theory, of course, but even more so, I think, a certain attention to empirical detail, which resonated with things I was learning from my advisor, Jennifer, who, in addition to being an anthropologist, is an artist and a scholar of art and art history. All, I think, what they share is like a devotion to uh, detail and its representation. I think that's so important for doing ethnography. And then, of course, it was just the incredible strength of gender and sexuality studies at Michigan. So Gail Rubin was there, David Halperin. I took courses with Carol Smith-Rosenberg and Valerie Traub. Uh, I could go on and on, but I'll can, but i just end by saying that I feel very lucky to uh, to have studied there.
0: And you said you're interested in obsession, people who mm-hmm. get obsessed yeah. with things. Now, what kind of uh, theoretical background or maybe just some kind of personal experience maybe mm-hmm. even that led to this interest in people who are obsessed?
1: Um, (laughs) That's a very good (laughs) question. Um, I don't know. I mean I got into anthropology because I had an obsession of my own actually right which is that um, growing up and I tell this to my undergraduates often on the first day of class is that I became an anthropologist yes because of this particular obsession which was the power of the culture concept um, I was I needed to understand how it had so much purchase in the world that I occupied anyway. So growing up in the U.S. in an in Indian household with Indian parents, culture was the beginning and the end, I thought, of far too many conversations, right? What can be done and what cannot be done, what can be thought and what cannot be thought. And even not to cast my family, who was very supportive in a negative light, but even I felt often... Um, culture was the beginning and end of conversations about what I could be and what I could not be. And um, so, of course, I rejected um, all of those things and studied anthropology uh, because, I guess, because I was very interested in this particular question.
0: Okay, so you, you said you were a pre-med student. That's right. At mm-hmm. first. That's and right. And then your encounter with, I guess, the culture concept and maybe mm-hmm. other anthropology courses led you to this, your own obsession with anthropology and yeah
1: mm-hmm. well we even as pre-med students you had to major in something other than pre-med where uh. I went to school and um, so anthropology struck me I guess because of its association with this culture concept issue um, but then I didn't really decide to focus on anthropology until I had the very good luck of taking a class uh, upper level seminar on feminist ethnography with someone who I will always be indebted to now it's uh, dr. Carla Roncoli. And it was seeing anthropology engaged through precisely its critique, people who cared enough about the discipline to engage with it this rigorously and often very beautifully, um, that really sealed it for me. And so I dropped the whole pre-med thing and became an anthropologist. It's
0: interesting how many people start out doing something else Mm -hmm. and then end up in anthropology. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you mentioned one book earlier on uh, that you said was important or uh, Transformative for your development. Can you tell us the name of the book again?
1: Oh, the uh, the book that I read as an undergraduate. Yeah. Oh, it was called "Their Feet Walk the Sky." Their feet walk. Yeah, the it was sky. just an anthology of um, lesbian writing, uh-huh. really. Mm-hmm. Were there were there
0: other books that mm-hmm. sort of guided you in the direction that you ended up taking? Um,
1: absolutely, yeah. Well, I love that question. And I, um, and um, so yes, I have a I have like a list of books that I think um, absolutely made me who I am. Right. So, but with apologies to those authors, um, I would I would list them thusly: um, Foucault's *The History of Sexuality*, Volume One; David Halperin's *Saint Foucault*, however panned it might be, I think unjustifiably so; um, Anne Stoller's *Race and the Education of Desire*. And from a class I took with Anne, Carol Steedman's Landscape for a Good Woman. That's been very important for my thinking about affect. Uh, The womanist, black feminist literature. So Audre Lorde primarily, but also Alice Walker, Bell Hooks, Toni Morrison, Barbara Smith. This naturalist writer by the name of Annie Dillard, who wrote a lot about wonder and epistemology, which I think has really influenced um, me in, in so many ways, and I think comes out in various ways in this essay. Um, Anna Singh's In the Realm of the Diamond Queen and Ruth Behar's Translated Woman. Partha Chatterjee's, this list is almost <laughs> over, Partha Chatterjee's Nationalist Thought in the Colonial World and this edited volume, Recasting woman, Women by Kumkum Sangari and Sudesh Ved. Butler's Bodies That Matter and Foucault's Diaries of Herculean Barbin. And then in recent years, so those were all the formative texts in college and grad school, mostly grad school. In recent years, I'd say Deleuze and Guattari's Capitalism and Schizophrenia, Brian Masumi's Parables of the Virtual, and Elizabeth Pavanelli's Empire of Love. Excellent. So those would be my greatest hits.
0: That sounds like a a really interesting syllabus for somebody getting into the kind of work that you do. Very cool. Now, um, I want to ask you about the link between your previous work now, Uh, in which you focused on on lesbian activism in India and this essay where you draw a connection between that activism and animal activism. Now what led you from that research to this current research?
1: Um, Well, the banal answer really is, I mean there are reasons that I could say are personal, practical and just serendipitous, right? The, The personal reason and perhaps the most banal one is just I'm drawn to this project for the same reason that I was drawn to my first project. I care about this. I identify with these questions in some ways. And you know, it's it's one of these things where I feel like there are questions that I that like my what drew me to anthropology in the first place. There are questions inside of me that I really just want to spend My time um, wondering about and writing about and exploring, um, like, you know, why and how are some lives valued over others? What stories do we tell to justify those kinds of relations? Uh, What stories do we tell effectively and otherwise to call those kinds of relations um, into question? Uh, The practical reason is that I think, um, perhaps I'm biased, that the question of animals in India is just sort of inherently interesting. Um, Or if someone disagreed with me on that point, which they'd be justified in doing, I suppose, then um, they would have to agree that the question of animals in India is certainly ubiquitous. So while I was doing my dissertation research on the queer book, um, it just, I started keeping this file on future projects, should I ever have the chance to do future projects. And um, this one just amassed a lot of very interesting clippings and ideas and uh, images. Um, so I was very excited when I got the chance to do this. And then the serendipitous thing was, A, being at a book fair in Delhi and seeing Manika Gandhi's book, Heads and Tails which much like my first encounter with their feet walk the sky or something like that, it was just seeing something captured within two covers that makes you realize that this is, some, this is something that can be written about, right? Um, but then also, as I said to Hemanjani in my uh, interview for, the, for my article on the website, I had this other moment where I was going to a meeting of queer activists, and um, I was in an auto rickshaw and um, passed by a dumpster with a cow, um, like a dead cow just in the trash. Uh And suddenly I just, I I could imagine writing a story. Suddenly all I wanted to do was to write the whole, the story of, of everything around that you know, what is, how is a cow in a trash heap? And especially in India, of course, given the politics around cows. Um, what is this place that has a cow? And I mean, because it was an animal hospital also, is was a dumpster outside of an animal hospital. So what is a cow? What is this place? Um, what is trash? What is valuable? Um, and so I think it was really that moment that made me want to write this book.
0: It, it, it's interesting how that mirrors the, mm-hmm. the episode that you introduce your own essay with, with somebody mm-hmm. encountering the animal. Right,
1: yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah so you yeah. felt
0: a similar sort of, uh, I don't know if you'd use the mm-hmm. word surrender to talk about it, but something that was drawing you to that kind of question mm-hmm. and those kinds of issues.
1: Mm, that's a nice way of putting it.
0: Um, I wonder if you would walk us through a day of the fieldwork that led to this essay. What were the kinds of things that you saw or heard or smell? Because smell is one of the mm-hmm. things that you refer back to a number of times in your essay. Uh, things like uh, the dead cow, right, in the dumpster.
1: Well, there wasn't really a typical day, though there were days that typified a particular week or a particular month of my fieldwork, and. The research for this project, like that of my first, but I think a little bit more sort of affectively um, variable in this particular project, it took me all over the country. So I was in Delhi, I was in Bombay, I was in Hyderabad, Nagaland, Benares, and then all sorts of different affective and institutional sites. So I, there were weeks that, you know, I just spent sitting in an NGO office writing essays or, you know, going through clippings or in archives and libraries. Um, sometimes I was, you know, in slaughterhouses. I was in dog shelters and cow shelters. Um, you, know, you know, one week in particular, just to give you a sense of how How many sort of different sites I would occupy. There was one week where I went from a silent meditation retreat in the mountains of Utranchal, which uh, I insist really had something to do with my fieldwork, and then to touring slaughterhouses all over Haryana. And that was all in the span of like five days, you know? And so there were just these, so there wasn't really a typical day. Uh Um, But, you know, what I loved about the fieldwork was precisely that, like on the face of it, it seems and even sometimes felt that there was something kind of really random about it all. You know, like I was just catching rides with people, but having no idea actually where I was getting to or where I was trying to go. Um, but um, these were all, you know, I think very fortuitous, and and I, realize, I realized it a little bit at the time, but certainly now as I'm writing it, that there was absolutely a logic to all of these encounters. And I'm just so glad, uh, again, you use the word surrender, I'm, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity and the time to really just surrender to that and you know and have a plan in some sense but also just be able to sort of go along with things and i i'm very lucky to have done that but um, as i say in my ca article the first person i met in the field was carmelia satija and even that did not go even remotely as i had imagined it would go she, you know i d- didn't know who i would be meeting there and and then after meeting her i um sort of uh, worked up the nerve to cold call Manika Gandhi, uh, who shouted at me and insulted me in ways that, uh, over the phone, in ways that I, you know, I I felt like I had to remind her that I was an adult woman, (laughs) you know, and, um, but she eventually warmed to me. And then uh, in one of our conversations gave me a long list of people I should meet and should not meet. And then I eventually encountered all of those people and it all kind of went from there.
0: So if you had advice for somebody who's starting out to do Mm -hmm. field work right now, then maybe your advice would be to surrender to this impulse and then see where different connections and different sort of encounters take you.
1: I I I would love if we could do that more, and and I know that there are time constraints, right? I mean, and often, but the thing, I mean, often when you're right, when you're doing your dissertation fieldwork, you'll kind of never have more time to do fieldwork than you will then, and so that would be the best time to to try this, and it's possible, you know. To and, and I feel like I did this a little bit my first time where i started by surrendering because i didn't know what i was doing and then at some point uh maybe three-fourths of the way through i figured out what the dissertation would be about and then could really isolate exactly what things i needed to learn do, find out before i could leave um and so that's one way of doing it, certainly. And, and I've, I've always felt like this, that there's something, I think it, writing proposals is a very important skill and writing a methodology section is a very important skill. We need to know what we would say we would do in an ideal set of circumstances. But to me, I, I mean, the richest fieldwork really comes when in some ways you kind of chuck all of that um, and and yeah, trust that you're putting yourself in the right positions, you're saying yes as much as you can possibly say yes, mm-hmm. and yeah, surrender to what happens.
0: Now, I, I guess all of the, the proposal writing and the writing of the methodology mm-hmm. section, it helps you build up a sensitivity maybe. I think so. So that you're mm-hmm. ready when something like that comes mm-hmm. along.
1: Absolutely, Great. absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you wanted to read a section of your essay that mm-hmm. helps us understand the sort of sights and sounds of your field work a little better. I could, I would love to do okay, that if that would you wouldn't
1: mind. Yeah, that would be an easier way for me to do this. So yeah, like I said, there were all sorts of different sites, but I think, you know, the, a time that I just, I remember so fondly was the summer of 2012. And I was in Bombay doing work, uh, spending half my week with PETA, in an NGO office, and half my week, walking around the streets with these people who, this organization called Welfare for Stray Dogs. And I write in this particular passage that I'm about to read about uh, a man named Abod, who's the CEO of Welfare for Stray Dogs. Um, Stop me if this goes on too long. Um, it's widely known among the English newspaper-reading public in the city that at 9.30 every Sunday morning, volunteers meet outside of Aero Cinema near Churchgate Station to make their way around the island city, administering rudimentary treatment to wounded animals. Afraid of being late, I was usually the first one there, and I'd smile when a would pull up in his maroon jalopy, wearing his yellow volunteer t-shirt and baggy blue jeans, stained with an ointment called Hymax that looks like caked blood. It would take him ten minutes to walk from the curb to where I was standing, as the very smell of him brought dogs out from under cars and bus shelters and pedestrian subways and who knows where else, loping over to be handled and loved. We would eventually branch off in small groups, each with a duffel bag full of instruments and applications and stained cotton balls, everything smelling of Hymacs and with a list of animals that needed tending to. This particular morning I went off with a bod and a young woman named Sumathi. Our first animal was listed as simply dog, oval medan. So we walked over to the oval medan and the chaiwala, where all the air smelled like cardamom and hot, sticky sweetness. The Chaiwala and his friends, upon seeing Abod, immediately stood up and gestured toward a dog lying on the sidewalk. Abod put his hands on the dog and knelt beside him as a friendly crowd of workers and loafers gathered around, all men and one boy in a soccer jersey. How old is the dog, Abod asked the boy. A hundred and twenty-seven, he answered, eyebrows furrowed. Abod laughed and one of the men smacked the boy on his head. The dog seemed fine enough for a street dog until Abode turned him over and lifted his head slightly. There, on his neck, was a red festering wound that I could smell from where I was standing. Abode called me in closer and pointed out a huge fluorescent green maggot wiggling around just under the pus, and with a pair of tweezers picked it out and placed it in a cotton ball that Sumathi held out for him, which she then closed upon the fattened vermin firmly, killing it. Abod placed some medicine on the wound, his hands still naked, then a spray of some sort, then a powder, and finally with his fingers dabbed gobs of hymax over and just inside the wound. The crowd was rapt, and the chaiwala shouted at them, Get to work, there's nothing to see here, get to work. Everyone ignored him. It was clear that the chaiwala loved the dog too. The animal now tended to, a different ritual began. Abod stood up and looked at his hands. Zarahato Could I wash my hands?" He addressed nobody in particular. The Chaiwala gestured to another man with an upturning of his chin, and the man rushed over to a rusty spigot, filled a tumbler with water, and picked up a thin creviced wafer of soap. Abod held his hands out, and the man poured water slowly over them, placing the soap between his hands, pausing as Abod cleaned roughly under his fingernails, and then rinsed Abod's hands of their dirt, the spent water spreading between them. The man, slightly stooped, stood up, taking the soap from Abode's hands, and in this moment, something transpired between them that I would call a glance or a nod, but was more than either. It was invisible, really. This unarticulated ritual occurred virtually every time Abode treated an animal, an animal that, despite its abjecting qualifier, street, was lodged in the heart of the men and women who shared the street with him. That moment was always thick, the circuits of touch and intimacy mediated by the animal forging bonds of continuity between men of men of otherwise dissimilar worlds. These are indeed enduring bonds, fat with futurity. There are streets abode has trouble walking along because the hawkers and dwellers rush out to meet him, still insisting with smiles and backslaps on giving gifts for his healings of animals past. He refuses everything but touch. That
0: was excellent. Thank you. So this is coming from, uh, not in your C.A. piece, but in a forthcoming piece.
1: Uh, hopefully forthcoming, yes.
0: <laughs> now, what I, what I liked about that was mm-hmm. that you really get a sense of mm-hmm. you know, the, the thickness of the atmosphere, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. The, the heaviness of the mm-hmm. air, not just from the smell, but also mm-hmm. like the social mm-hmm. atmosphere, how thick and dense that is in that particular situation. And I think those kind of characteristics characterize also the piece in C.A., uh, that you wrote. So I was wondering if we could uh, move to talking about that. Now, um, your essay begins by introducing us to Manika Gandhi, and you call her India's best known animal rights activist, but I guess she also was not happy to talk to you the first at time. At first, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> at first. In
1: part because she's she's busy actually being an animal activist oh, and not talking to random people. Uh, Strangers on the phone. (laughs) Well, you you were able to Mm. sort of smooth that out and and, uh, Mm. build up a relationship with Mm. her.
0: But um, through her, you you give us a sense of the complicated history of animal welfare activism in India. Could Mm. you give us a little bit about that?
1: Um, Oh, sure, yeah. Well, there's another story here, actually, that also could partly answer your earlier question about how I got interested in this topic. Uh, For my first book on queer activism, I spent a lot of time with progressive radical people. And one of the first things that becomes clear when you're spending time with progressive radical people in India is that the more progressive a person is, the more likely they are to abhor vegetarianism and to eat meat with just this gusto, right? And the main reason for this is a desire to disavow caste and religious privilege, vegetarianism, and particularly a taboo against beef eating, as many people know is a characteristic of high caste Hindus and is used as a way to differentiate high caste Hindus from Dalits and Muslims in an act of devaluing Dalits and Muslims and people who do eat meat and are not vegetarian. And because of how successfully, and this is in part one of my problems with the act of abhorring vegetarianism or, or eating meat as a political uh, act, is in some ways, for me, this is also about the way that the Hindu right has colonized political and moral discourse in India, especially since the late 1990s as I was describing earlier uh, with the rise of Hindu fundamentalism. And so because of the way in which the Hindu right has managed to just suck up all the air and make all political and moral discourse about right-wing fundamentalism is either with it or against it, um, many people feel it impossible or um, undesirable, and I understand that to disentangle vegetarianism from animal rights or animal welfare politics more generally, and to disentangle animal rights politics from uh, Hindu fundamentalism. So that's one of these sort of thorny entanglements. Um, another one uh, is the one is the entanglement of animal welfare politics with colonialism, which goes back just as far and is is just as thorny um and i talk about this a little bit in my essay as you say one example that we can think of to think about this relationship is basically the way that um the british talked about let's say the figure of the girl child or the hindu woman okay as these figures that really represented oppression par excellence, uh, in Gayatri Spivak's words, the brown women who had to be saved from brown men by white people, right? Um, you could just basically replace that word with animal, okay? So instead of the girl child, the horse, instead of the Hindu woman, the dog. Um, and the discourse was very similar. Look at how these barbarians treat their, uh, their innocent, voiceless Uh, animals, right? And so again, understandably, it's very, it's sometimes impossible and sometimes undesirable, actually, to separate the forms that animal rights politics take in India today uh, with that history, uh, that affective history of liberalism, which very much posited the animal as this figure that needed to be saved as part of a larger colonial project. And I wouldn't deny that that's still, in some ways, the, the, the place that people come from when they engage with animals in India. But what I want to insist is that, again, that our thinking um, and our openness to things not be so colonized by certain kinds of histories, that absolutely that's, that's part of the story, but it mustn't be uh, the entire story.
0: Mm-hmm. And then I think mm-hmm. a, a lot of the things you say about sort of the contradictory nature of where people stand and what mm-hmm. people are and what they try to become mm-hmm. is, speaks to that sort of wanting to not be colonized but still, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to get out of that colonizing in some ways as well. Absolutely. And just mm-hmm. uh, about the, the similarity between the discourses in uh, sort of the colonial saving of the brown woman mm-hmm. Uh, And your previous work, you mentioned also that there's a a similar kind of coming out moment for the uh, Mm -hmm. animal activists Mm -hmm. as there are for, or no, queer activists. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: Yeah, everyone seems to have a story about how they became an animal rights activist, right? And it usually was, you know, framed almost as a coming out narrative.
0: Now, um, we've already mentioned uh, Monica Gandhi Mm a couple of times. And... Uh, I want to focus on her for just a second because you talk about, you just mentioned how everybody has a story. Now, you say that Manaka Gandhi was greatly influenced by Crystal Rogers, right. who was one of mm-hmm. an- India's first animal welfare activists. And the essay contains a quote from Rogers' memoir, Mad Dogs and an Englishwoman* that I think exemplifies the importance of witnessing for these activists. Now, Would you be able to read this quote for us?
1: I, I will, yes. I was on my way to New Zealand when I saw a horse which caused me to remain in India. It was standing at the side of a very busy road, with the crows tearing the flesh off its back. As I ran towards it, it turned its head towards me, and to my horror, I saw that it had bleeding sockets from which the crows had already pecked out its eyes. I rang up the SBCA, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but there was little that could be done, and the horse had to be shot. If any passerby had done something earlier, the horse might have been saved. I canceled my journey to New Zealand and stayed in India to see what I could do for animal suffering. We need to fight on every front. If we run away and hide our heads to avoid seeing the sight which horrifies us, we are unworthy of the compassion that has been granted us by the Almighty."
0: Now, this is Maneka Gandhi. Uh, this is something that influenced Right, Gandhi yeah, this
1: is Mennica Gandhi quoting uh, Crystal, Crystal Rogers. Rogers. Right.
0: And you use this and other instances of uh, witnessing to talk about how activists become activists, but also how they become animal. In a way. Now, how did you come to understand witnessing through things such as this?
1: Well, again, this is another story about fortuitous uh Thing where um, I was invited, Michael Lambeck, as I say in my acknowledgements, invited me to be on this panel, and there was something productive in the abstract that made me think of visuality, and I went back to my field notes, and there were all these moments where I, I I became very intrigued, as you said, with these sort of coming out narratives. And one of the things that was so fun about writing this, about starting this project, is that anywhere I went, Um, any dinner party, any gathering, anywhere, if I said I was working on animals, everyone had a story. A story about how they became vegetarian or some horrible thing they saw that changed their lives forever. And so I would write these stories down and I was very intrigued by the role that seeing played. Uh, and this idea of witnessing something. But what's interesting to me about this is that we all see things all the time. There are just particular moments in which we see something that we become bound to that which we've seen. And no matter how much we would like to be unbound from it, um, to escape from the hold that it now has on us, um, it it doesn't work, You're, you're compelled. And so I was interested in these stories of, um, of coming to an idea, coming to a way of being, these moments of witnessing, and it just so happened at this around the same time that I was working on this and thinking about this, I was reading um, one of the books from my greatest hits list earlier, uh, Elizabeth Povinelli's, um Empire of Love, and was very intrigued by this idea of the exfoliation of the social skin. So I started thinking about witnessing as this act of sight that then um, has a certain kind of intimacy to it. And the examples that I use in this, um, article are really about the idea of locking eyes with another being and what that then means and what that compels and how it in some ways exfoliates the social skin. It makes one want to to be less human, to be less oneself because of in some ways the recognition of one's own complicity in another being suffering. And that's again from the stories that the activist told me. Um, so that's where I started the paper but then i went somewhere that i now feel was very obvious my next moment that then i believe that i undid later Um, but then the next iteration of that um, was to see this as okay it looks like it's an exfoliation of the social skin it looks like one becoming sort of less oneself but in a way there was just this Um, actually in some ways a reproduction of what being human meant right that now I've had this moment of witnessing an animal in pain and I want to become less myself but I also need to become more myself in order to speak for it in order to represent the voiceless against these echoes with the colonial discourse that I was talking about earlier so I sort of seized on this moment and I said wow what a what a contradiction here we have someone who's wanting to become less human but becoming more human Um, and uh, then from there, I, I, I believe uh, a little bit later, when coming back to the essay in order to, to submit it here, um, I sort of rethought that particular angle.
0: You talk about the, the dual meanings mm-hmm. of witnessing, sort of mm-hmm. the witnessing that brings you closer, this exfoliating of the social skin. And then this sort of witness as sort of, a, I don't know, able to provide testimony, like a person who can who can stand there and speak on behalf of mm-hmm. this other that that he or she has witnessed? And so there's this—I uh, think you call it hyper embodiment, right? Exactly. Happens, mm-hmm. You know, at the same time and almost as a consequence, you know, they, they sort of imply each other. I mm-hmm. think. Now, um, you know, one of the questions that's particularly important for you is. Uh, related to this this sort of contradiction of, of witnessing. And it's a dilemma of how to understand how the activists felt that their work went forward because they'd surrendered to something larger than themselves or that they were or wanted to become animal. And this leads you to realize some of your own assumptions about mm-hmm. what it is to be human mm-hmm. or animal. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Um, yes. Well, this is, um, this is what I mean about the... Um, or what I was alluding to earlier with, I think, going a route that was to me the easiest route to take, right? Which is I know what a human is and I know what it is to be hyper embodied as human and I know what it is to have the colonial mentality of wanting to represent the voiceless other. And again, so seizing on that particular contradiction. and But then I felt like I wasn't doing justice really to the perfectly real possibility that when Satija said to me that she becomes an animal, and it was also, it was, it was focusing on that word, becoming an animal, She's, and that to me was important. It's not she says that she becomes an animal, but she becomes one, which to me, it has a certain notion of an unfolding, and it took me to other kinds of thinking and scholarship on questions of of becoming other. Again, uh, Deleuze and Guattari and Masumi um, and all of that. and. But mostly it was a feeling that i I hadn't done justice to the possibility that they might really be becoming animals, and also when i at a at a first draft of this essay, uh, I then did uh, several more months of field work later uh, and it was also through those experiences that I came to rethink these questions um, and so I wanted to take seriously the idea that Sateja or Gandhi or whoever actually could become an animal and um so which led me to, um, to realize that that I was in some ways, that my own thought had been so colonized by humanism that I was seeing examples of it everywhere. And I wanted to, to think about the ways that basically all politics are forms of becoming in some form or another. And so I was intrigued by this question of why was it impossible for me to believe that Satija becomes an animal? But it's not at all impossible for me to believe that, and I use these two examples in my essay, that um, of queer women in India becoming Indian, right? Or, and I use the uh, example of the sanitation strike in Memphis in 1968, of black men holding signs that said, I am a man. And these to me were all just like satyajas, though, as I say, different uh, in some forms, um, ways of becoming. And so it was about thinking about politics as always being um, acts of becoming in some form or another. So one of the things that I came to as I was writing that story of seizing on the contradiction of her exfoliating her social skin but hyper embodying as human um, was something that I want to think a lot about now, which is having a modality in the field and as an analyst and a writer of essentially what do I know? To basically have that be the framework through which I tried to understand everything. To uh, to imagine that um, I don't know in advance.
0: So w- would you say that for these other two cases that you compare sort of the becoming animal mm-hmm. to, is it underneath the becoming Indian and lesbian, or underneath becoming a man? I think is the other one mm-hmm. you talked about that though you were you realize that you were assuming that. Being human yeah. was underlying both of those. Mm-hmm. And that, that hadn't been sufficiently brought up. But I guess this ethnography that you did helped you to, to see that. You know, I I guess you could say that it's like becoming human all the time instead of being human in the same at the same mm-hmm. moment that people are becoming animal. Mm-hmm. Becoming something.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Okay, so, um,
0: what implications does what you've just said have for anthropology if we understand anthropology as a study of human life well
1: i would want to suggest that by knowing in advance there is something called human life a human condition we are necessarily setting ourselves up for not being open to what that might mean That's I think for me what I've come to with this project is that, you know, there's a way in which field work, it implies openness to whatever comes up, right? If if we, that's why we do it because we don't already know something. So we do field work and we learn those things and there's an experiential aspect to it. Otherwise we could just sit at home in our libraries and read books, right? So there's something about fieldwork and its centrality to our discipline that implies a fundamental openness to the world. But what's intriguing to me is that that's always, it's foreclosed from the outset too, in the very formulation of the idea of the human condition. So we go to find out what we don't already know, but we already know this, right? That there is this thing called the human condition and that we know what that is. And I feel like if we can hold that assumption also in abeyance, um, and again this is also related to what I was saying about surrender and fieldwork, if we can hold the idea of even a human condition of the anthropos, of anthropology in abeyance and see what comes up and how much a a, a kind of something that is not just other to humanity, but I think far more important for me is the question of ways of being in the world that are truly indifferent to it. Indifferent to being human, indifferent to being part of a human condition, Um, not just opposed to again. Um, That to me is where really interesting questions come up that might well fit into investigations into the quote unquote human condition but precisely by being open to not knowing what that means or if that's limited to the kinds of bodies and forms that walk around under the sign of human
0: it was a question that came up for me in my own field work sometimes Mm -hmm. like I I studied people who played with the idea of what it means to be human in various ways and so I kept thinking in my mind while I'm talking to people how do these people actually know that they're human you know it has to be learned from someplace and usually it comes from Biology or science, mm. or but there's also a layer of social relations and the Absolutely. people, uh, the organisms and the ecosystems that people are in contact with, and the social systems, that um, build up into something that doesn't probably doesn't hold as well together as well as we assume it does in mm-hmm. many cases. And I think this is uh, one of the interesting streams of research that I think yours is is well representative of. Thank you. Um, so near the end of your essay, uh, you introduce us to a family of Americans living in India who work, for, work to care for animals. And you describe especially a woman named Erica who you say had a profound effect on the people around her. And would you like to tell us about Erica by way of your essay?
1: Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Erica. Well, Erica, I have to say, is a lot like Big Bird. And I can say that because I know she does not mind, for she has nothing against either birds or Muppets, and is quite aware that she is tall, wild, and gangly. Erica, aged 59, almost always wears saris, but while I was there, the family was moving their animal shelter to a larger site, which involved actually carrying animals in their arms, one by one, from a van into large outdoor enclosures. So I usually saw her in random house pants and kurtas, her glasses sometimes on her head, sometimes her head covered with a bandana that she otherwise wears around her neck. I think I will always remember the sight of her, slightly disheveled, slightly mad-looking, but somehow calm, and everything revolving around her in a steady, necessary orbit. She is carrying a bucket full of water even though it has been a very long and hot day and the dogs trail behind her, and she is harried but full of love. And I can see why an activist named then says Erika is, quote, like a god to him. And another activist named Rohit calls her, quote, the mother of animals. And why Timmy Kumar, who directs Jaipur's renowned shelter, Help and Suffering, and has a cult following herself, told me she, quote, fell to the ground and wept when she first saw Erica with the animals. I know that sounds overly dramatic, but somehow it is not when you see this woman rolling in the dirt with salivating, joyous, romping, three-legged dogs. I wish I had fallen to the ground in tears myself.
0: I I, I really like this last line. And I think what you've just read fits well into what you were just saying about anthropology as sort of, uh, well, fieldwork as having this openness to the people that you're talking to and, you know, the other non-humans that you encounter along the way. Um, And you've spoken a bit about this already, but um, with this last line about how you wish you had fallen to the ground in tears yourself, it it seems to point to some kind of limit of what you, as an anthropologist, Mm -hmm. are able to witness or able to speak of. And so i want to ask you about that and and how you think it might fit into what we usually imagine as an anthropologist's work of participating in observation
1: mm-hmm. yeah this well as you point out this is that line is very much about my own limitations um that regardless of how and again again that fundamental supposition of fieldwork of being open to to what comes up is I'm constantly aware of how limited that is. There's always the part of me that is not going to fall to the ground and weep the way other activists do when they see this woman with the dogs. And for me, this is in part about a certain kind of um, an observational stance that's so attuned to itself that's so hyper-aware of itself and its own modalities um, of, of being the observer and observing oneself observing, observing one's own boundaries, um, observing what one is taking in and how well one is taking it in. That that notion, that thing that happens sometimes when you're in the field where you're observing something and you're writing it at the same time writing it, a few, you can imagine it as part of the story and this, to me, while productive in its own ways, is also about um, about not about an inability to actually be there, you know, because we're so engaged with these various degrees and levels and layers of observation of other and self that there's this, the, yeah this part of you that's that's not present enough so that I could have. Um, all my defenses could have fallen away, all of my cynicism or my too coolness or whatever, fallen away so that I could have, you know, just been that moved by by what I saw there. And it's very interesting because um, it's actually through, I mentioned earlier that, I, that part of my field work was this uh, Vipassana training, right? Uh, or retreat, shouldn't call it a training, wasn't that militaristic, but, um, and this actually came up through through Erica and a couple of other activists who I cite here um, in this section, who, because they are involved in this world, and this is very much related to the idea of witnessing and compulsion, um, have found that they that it's. It's an inability. One's always going to the next thing. One's always moving, moving, moving. And they needed something in life that could allow them to be where they are. And um, so I took up or I started trying uh, these meditation retreats in part as a way to, to understand this process uh, for these activists. But but that to me is what that line is about, about the inability to be present uh-huh. and and wanting in some ways to... to, to To fight against that. Uh
0: Now, I I want to um, address the broader significance. I guess now, in your essay, you show us how India occupies an interesting movement for uh, position and movements for the welfare and protection of animals globally. And I didn't know that the founder of PETA uh, is really active at the offices that PETA has in India, Um, but. Of course, animal protection and welfare of concern all over the world. Um, Now, through the kinds of perspectives made possible by your work, um, what kind of effect or uh, influence do you hope to have on, uh, not just within anthropology, but the broader social or ethical or political debates about animals?
1: That's... um uh, I, it's a very important question, and um, thank you for asking me. Um, I say this a little bit in my uh, interview with Himangini uh, on the website, is that I? Th- the most important thing for me is, again, these questions of opening, of, of not knowing in advance the kind of politics we're supposed to have, what that needs to look like. But it's also, again, is something that very much came out in the writing of this essay, and so i'm 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 happy for that process. Um, it's about resisting the colonization of our imagination by these capital letter forces, Hindu fundamentalism, um, being one of them, for example. So the issue for me, all I would want to hopefully open up here is the question of what I'm increasingly thinking about as the tyranny of consistency. Um, The ways in which we know in advance that I am this kind of person who rejects, say, the Hindu right. I am the kind of person who loves humans more than animals, right? These kinds of Um, these assertions that we make about ourselves and who we are that then limit the possibility of acting in ways that might sometimes run contrary to these designations. Um, And so basically I want to think about ways of being in the world that are more imminent and less determined in advance so that it's possible that even if you're someone who um, hates uh, Hindu fundamentalism and um, Brahmin privilege, uh, which of course is a more than reasonable uh, position to have, um, that one could be open to um, the violence and the exploitation that is often meted out to animals, and that, these, that, that one needn't colonize the other. So that, to me, would be one of the points, um, which is, yeah, this idea of openness and the imminence of ethics. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so essentially, I think, uh, as we were talking about with Erica, uh, one of the, the goals of this, of this writing is really about exploring questions of, of surrendering to things that we don't already know in advance and to the possibilities that we might feel things and act ethically in ways that we hadn't anticipated
0: So I'm wondering then, I've heard from another student in our department (laughs) that uh, you have a pet, that you're a a huge cat lover. Mm. And so I'm wondering, uh, does this make you think of your own cat differently or the other animals that you encounter? Like we encounter animals in all sorts of different Mm -hmm. forms, right? Not just as pets and companions, but also images and also... um, meat in the supermarket Mm -hmm. and uh, livestock and other things so uh, but we at at moments we collapse all of these things into one sort of category of not human Mm -hmm. animals Mm -hmm. so how does maybe the the work you've done help you look at these kinds of things from a different perspective
1: well, uh, I can't tell you how happy I am that you use the word cat lover because that is my new, um, the new object of, of all of my sort of critical uh, engagement energy these uh-huh. days <laughs> has been around this idea precisely of the animal lover, right? Um, and so I actually just wrote this paper um, that I called Love and Other Injustices which is precisely about, well, both of these things that you mentioned, A, the idea of animal lovers, but also the idea of what this means for for the differential value that we place on different kinds of animals. Um, So I'm very intrigued. In India, animal activists are often called animal lovers, and this is a common place in other places as well. And one of the things that, that really troubles me about this Idea and Peter Singer writes about this in *Animal Liberation*. Is actually, I mean, it's very why conflate in this partic- in these particular kinds of cases. And he gives the example also of um, the anti-abolitionist movements and the kind of language that was used um, to refer to anti-abolitionists. Um, and so there's this way in which. Um, So there it was the language of the nigger lover. Here it's the language of the animal lover. And so the question for me is, what work does it do to conflate an issue that is political and that is ethical with the idea of love, right? Which A, allows those who don't share that politics or in some ways oppose that politics to say, oh, but that's just something that's inherent to them. You either, because love is one of these things, you either have it or you don't. You uh, You can't engineer it, you can't produce it nor can you be called into it. It happens or it doesn't, it's the intimate event. Um, but it also, it allows people to see certain kinds of politics and ethics as, as, as irrational, really, right? Which is in some way the bane of animal welfare activism. I've talked about these other obstacles, like its association with colonialism, or its association with, um, with right-wing nationalism, but its other bane is precisely being seen as, as profoundly irrational and just, just purely affective. And so for me, that language in some ways reproduces that idea. But the other issue around love that I really want to talk about is how our love for certain kinds of beings actually in some ways absolve us of ethical behavior outside of those relationships, right? So as you say, yes, um, I do have these cats, even though I very much agree with Ingrid Newkirk on the issue of... Pet keeping is being p- extremely problematic. Um, but then, when I'm asked about these animals, right? And so, in you know, again, because uh, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but I've been a vegan for a very long time, and all of these sort of things. And I'm often asked, well, you know, things like, well, you feed your cats meat or something like. You know, these again, the politics of consistency and inconsistency. And absolutely I do and that's a problem right but it's precise and all I can say is shrug my shoulders and say well I love them right and so I'm not going to put them to sleep or put them out of my house and I'm going to continue feeding them these things but that isn't an answer that's actually a problematic answer but it's but it's one that we all make all the time about how our love for people who we have decided share something with us who are not nameless and faceless, but ha- have a name, um, who, who share our lives whatever however we identify with them. They create this zone in which um, that's both sort of uh, ethically oversaturated, it's the zone in which I am an ethical being, which actually allows me outside of that zone to be absolved of my ethical work, right? So every idea that I have, every principle that I hold is somehow negated by the very fact that all I can do is shrug my shoulders and say, yes, well, I love these things, right? And, But I want to think about how that needn't be, there's nothing inevitable about those relationships. And those relationships that we call love in order to shrug our shoulders and say, well, what can I do, are also their decisions. And I wanna start thinking about the way in which we talk about, these various ways in which we talk about the relationship between love and the ethical.
0: Uh, Are there other publications that are coming up where people can look to if they're interested in the topics that you cover?
1: Uh, Well, um, I have just sent out uh, something that I read from earlier and um, uh, am co-authoring a piece with a colleague um, at Brown University, Brigupati Singh, who is also a cultural anthropology author um on what we're calling the killability of animals and so i talk uh in harrowing detail about uh the slaughter of chickens um a topic that i'm sure many people are you know interested in (laughs) and um so and of course i'm at work on my book which i am calling uh at least for now the social skin humans and animals
0: in india very nice well thank you for joining us Mm -hmm. today We've been speaking with Professor Dave of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. Her essay, Witness, Humans, Animals, and the Politics of Becoming, appears in the August 2014 issue of Cultural Anthropology. Uh, The essay is part of a special section which addresses the borders of the human. The entire issue is available for free download at our website, callanth.org. And there you'll find uh, supplemental materials including web links, photos, questions for classroom discussion and an interview with Professor Dave by uh, Hamangani Gupta, and links to other of Professor Dave's work. Her book, Queer Activism in India, A Story in the Anthropology of Ethics, is available from Duke University Press. And. As always, send us your thoughts about this episode by email at, anthropod at collanth.org or Twitter, where we are at Colanth, and on Facebook, search for the Society for Cultural Anthropology. You can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Uh, thanks for listening, and thanks for joining us, Professor Dave.
1: Thank you very much for having me.